I feel moved when I come to speak at the beginning of the evenings to take a few moments just to express my appreciation and respect to the Buddha, the representation of the Buddha we have here. Because there's uh, no doubt for me that what he offered us and certainly what he offered me in his teaching and through his life is something remarkable and precious and for which I'm incredibly grateful and which he, as a human being, symbolizes our capacity to understand for each of us to realize for ourselves. And I'd like to speak a little this evening about what it means for this practice to come to fruition. The underlying intention in practice, in this practice and in these teachings is that it's something which contributes to well-being, to the ending of suffering and to the, the welfare of all, of others and oneself. And it is the development of wisdom, of understanding, of seeing clearly what is true that leads to both freedom and to compassion in life. And it is these two that are the fruit or the fruition of awakening. The Tibetan teacher Kalu Rinpoche once observed, he said, You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you, will, when you realize this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Remarkable teaching. We live in appearance and the we live in illusion and the appearance of things. The fundamental appearance that we it seems see and that we certainly believe in is the sense of self and other, the sense of ourself as somehow being over here and everyone else and in fact everything else as somehow being over there, something other than and separate from that which we imagine ourselves to be. And the, the effect, the cost of this way of seeing is a, a very deep and painful sense of isolation, of disconnection, of separateness. That is the underlying dynamic of suffering. That although we can recognize in life there are those things that are difficult, that are painful, that are challenging, that are scary and unwished for. And indeed, this is a feature, a fact of life, that some of what we encounter is this. What really makes those difficult or challenging experiences into what we, I think, could understand as suffering in its deepest sense is the way in which we conclude as a result of those experiences that somehow we are separate, isolated and disconnected from all that is around us. When we look at the experience of what we call life and its frame, we could say, the frame of birth in which it seems to begin, a frame of death, in which it seems to end. So much suffering, it seems, arises in relationship to this. So much of the effort and the energy of our lives can be spent attempting to avoid life coming to an end. And of course, the fact that it does, it's not inappropriate that we would grieve 
and feel concern or sorrow with regard to such experiences. And yet, if we look at what happens, there's a process whereby our experience is coming into form, into shape, arising and passing away. Ongoingly, all experience comes and goes. So too, this body comes and goes. And in its going, there is the loss, the ending. When we take this that comes and goes to be ultimately what we are, we are bound to death. And in that binding of ourselves to the ending of what has arisen, there's a, again, a degree of suffering that's associated with that that goes beyond the quite natural and appropriate sense of sorrow or loss at the ending of something we love or someone we love or this very existence which we cherish. It's a little bit like a wave on the ocean that might just be moving as waves do on the surface of the sea. One might imagine for a moment if one could just tune in to the experience of a wave on the ocean, what that might be like, just this, suddenly this, wow, what a ride, you know, out there on the open sea, moving along as waves do. And then at some point the wave starts to notice off in the far distance that something's going on out there. It seems to be the shoreline and the waves are heading towards the shoreline and it's suddenly seeing in the distance that those waves are hitting the shore and they're being destroyed, annihilated it seems. And the thought arises for the wave, I'm going to be annihilated, I don't want that to happen. And we could imagine the wave sort of starting to think, okay, how do I avoid this? Well, you know, there's no reverse gear on this thing. It's only going in one direction. Life only goes in that direction. And one could imagine the wave getting really quite distressed and concerned, seeing all the waves in front of it crashing into the shore and appearing to, and in fact being, annihilated, it seems. And this wave would, of course, having no choice about the matter, going in only one direction, crash into the shore. And it would be gone. Of course, that's for sure. But what would happen to the water? What happens to the water when the wave hits the shore? It's unharmed. In our tendency to identify with the appearance of things that come and go, we we don't allow ourselves or support ourselves to see the deeper nature of things, which is unharmed by the coming or the going of what we call this life, the forms and the shapes of experience. And the the human experience is informed, as we've observed and commented, as in, or it's, a, it's, it's revealed essentially as sight and sound and smell and taste and touch and thought and feeling. And that's what's going on. And there isn't something else apart from that. That seems clear. This is what we attend to in our practice, in the meditation, in the sitting, in the walking, in the moving, the yoga. This is the field of our exploration. And our sensory equipment registers things going on that seem to create the picture of our life and our world. And this is kind of obvious. It doesn't need me to say that. But I'm just naming it, stating it, because that's what we know. And yet what's very interesting is that our sensory equipment can only really register things that are changing. This is significant. You're all familiar with the experience of the um, the fridge hum that we don't even notice. We were commenting on this in one of the groups, I think. We don't even notice that it's on until it stops 
And then we go, ah, we relax. But the sound was obviously impacting us at some level, but we were completely unaware of it. Well, you've, I'm sure, had the experience of walking into a room that's, the smell is a little bit sort of off, you know? Maybe a sweaty yoga studio. And very interestingly, within a short period of time, one stops noticing the smell. You recognize the experience? And someone else walking in goes, oh, and you're, oh, no, I'm not smelling it anymore. What seems apparent, and this has been observed and checked out in many ways, is that when there's a constant experience, after a little while we just tune it out. We don't really notice it anymore. We don't register it. So if there's a sound just in the background, after a little while it just disappears. We don't really tune it in anymore. And that it's a little different if it's a very loud or intense experience. Then it seems to remain impacting us. And we, we don't suddenly start noticing, stop noticing if someone's, you know, consistently um, banging us with a stick or something. You know, that, that's sort of consistent experience we keep noticing, it seems. But at a, at a sort of quieter experience, and, and this can be noticed, you know, a pressure on one's leg. If it's a, a moderate pressure, not extreme, after a while we just stop noticing it. When it first happens, we notice it. If it stops, we notice it. And so some scientists and psychologists were very interested in this and wondering if this was true for all the senses because it, no one seemed to report the fact that when you're looking at something, if you look at it for a while and it doesn't move, that suddenly it would disappear. <laughs> We'd stop noticing it. It doesn't happen for us, does it? But looking at the eye, what they realised was that, in fact, the eye is rapidly moving. You're probably aware the eye is rapidly shimmering left to right as it sits in your eye socket. And as a result, the image being registered in the receptors at the back of your eye is constantly changing. It's constantly changing. So you're not getting a steady image being projected onto the back of the eye. And the mind has learned to compensate for this by stopping it shaking. When we look and we don't see the shaking, but if you ever get a bang to the head and you're sort of fuzzy for a while... It's because the compensating mechanism has stopped operating and you're seeing what the actual raw data is producing, which is a blurry, shaking image. Now, these scientists and psychologists were very interested in this and they thought, what would happen if we could neutralise that movement? So they mounted a projector and a screen and connected the projector to a contact lens that was wired to be sensitive to the movement so the projector could actually move with the eye. And then they've just projected something onto the screen. Someone wearing the contact lens was looking at it. And what they reported was that they looked at this image and for a while it was there and then suddenly <laughs> disappeared. Quite surprising for the person in the experiment. <laughs> Very interesting from the point of view of a someone who's interested in understanding the nature of reality, because what it says is that the eye, like all the other sense doors, stops or doesn't register something that's constant. It only registers things that change. It's very interesting. Because our experience is changing all the time. And we, in meditation, learn to examine the changing nature of experience, to see that, in fact, sometimes we imagine these changing things as being constant. But, in fact, they're not. All the experiences we've ever had and will ever have, all of the sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts and feelings, arise and pass. It's the nature of them. There isn't anything outside of that that we experience through our sensory receptivity and this you can check it out you can look and see if you can find something that you're looking at or that you're hearing or smelling or tasting or touching that actually remains constant over the duration of time things might stay pretty constant for a while but ultimately even the most solid and substantial things change Because of that changing nature of experience, the experiences that come to us in this way through our sensory receptivity, 
don't have the capacity to give us lasting satisfaction. They can't provide us with ongoing happiness or fulfilment because they in themselves are not ongoing. So you can see how they wouldn't work. Even really lovely things will only be that for a while. And even actually the loveliest things we have that might really touch our hearts, and beautifully so, appropriately so, at some point we're parted from them and then actually it's painful. It's grievous. It's not easy. And this is the nature of the world of things. And yet this is not all that our life reveals. And the Buddha spoke of and pointed to an understanding of what he sometimes called the deathless dharma. Nibbana was the word he used. And it's something that's not often spoken that much about in dharma teachings because there's very little we can say. And yet it's important that we include this in our field of exploration. You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. So what does that mean for us? If we don't identify with these experiences that are changing, if we see that thoughts, that feelings, that images, that ideas, that the very form and stuff of our our daily lives is something fluid, something flowing, something in flux, we could say. If we see that so, then it's less easy to become fixated upon it or somehow invested in it in the idea that this is going to give me lasting satisfaction. It's important that we see this. No thing in and of itself can give us lasting satisfaction because all things that come, go. And there aren't any things that don't come and go. And equally and importantly, no thing or condition in itself can ultimately be a bar to our discovering lasting happiness and satisfaction. Equally, because things that come, even difficult, unwanted things, also go. And if we understand that this is so, then we're less fixated upon or intoxicated with the progression and the the flow of experience in terms of what it particularly looks like or what its flavour or its shape is. Of course, we need to take care of what's going on with our lives, but there's another way in which we can understand that, that there's more to life than just this. This isn't a teaching of some kind of you know, despair, it's all changing, it's all empty, it's all suffering. Sometimes that's a rather tragic mistranslation of the teachings. No, there's actually a teaching pointing here to something in which freedom is revealed. And so... How do we encounter? How do we engage with this possibility or this suggestion? It doesn't make any sense. If we can't encounter it through our sensory equipment, through the thoughts and feelings that our mind and body experience, nothing we can see, smell, taste, touch, feel or think, what do we do? It's like, isn't that all there is? And in one sense it seems to be. And yet... The fact that we can know all these experiences at all is revealing something to us, is pointing to something both simple, ordinary and yet profound and mysterious. And it's part of how this happens or the way what's going on works is that we tend to pick out things in the foreground and focus on them, what stands out to us. And of course what stands out to us is all the colours and shapes and flavours and textures and sounds all around us. Sometimes it can be overwhelming how much of that is pouring through our experience and we're just barely able to handle digesting even half of it. 
But as we start to quiet, as we start to settle back and rest more deeply into the immediacy of our experience, we can become more sensitive to the, we could say, the vibrational resonance of what's happening beyond the particular things that are taking place. And perhaps a good way to understand that I find helpful as an illustration for this is what happens when we go to a movie. I'm sure you've all been to the movies. Now we go along, what happens? You go into a room, they turn out the lights, everybody sits there quietly, and then they project some colours, some light, onto a blank white screen. And then they make some vibrations in the air around it, and between these colours and these vibrations, suddenly the story unfolds. And there's these colours, they're the good colours, we like them. There's the other colours, they're not very good, they're bad, they're trying to hurt these colours, we're a bit worried in case they get them. And it's some colours on a screen. And if someone said, it's just colours on a screen, we'd say, shut up, you're spoiling the movie. But we're excited or we're scared or we're, you know. We can only see the colours because there's a screen reflecting them. If there wasn't a screen there, the light would just go out into the out into space and that would be it. But there's a screen that reflects the colours to us. Now, if we can see the screen, if they miss, they get the projection wrong and they get it half on the curtains and half on the wall, so we can see that it's just colours on a screen, it doesn't work, does it? We want our money back. Huh? You, you, you see how that works? It works because it's very carefully organised so you can't see the screen. And therefore, you... Get drawn. We get drawn into the sense of this being real. Now, movies are popular. They make a lot of money for a lot of people because they mimic rather precisely our inner experience. And, you know, the colours do what they do and eventually, of course, the good colours manage to overcome the bad colours and they meet some other other cute colours and go off and, you know, that's life, isn't it? It seems. But that's... Yeah, we pay money for this. Really, we do. I do. (laughs) This that's taking place right here, that we call being alive, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought, feeling, all of this, we can only know it and see it and experience it because of the underlying We could say reality in which it's happening, or the underlying truth through which it's manifesting. But we can't see it, or touch it, or even think it. In the same way that in the movie, the screen is invisible. But we know in the movie that the screen is there because it's reflecting the light back to us. And if the screen wasn't there, that wouldn't be happening. And yet there's something in us that as we quieten down, as we allow things to settle, as we start to sense the stillness and the space between the moments of experience, and we don't so quickly grab them and say, I want this one. Or if we do, we notice that we're doing it. And we start to say, okay, I'll put it down. We don't so quickly get hold of another one and say, I want to get rid of that one. Or if we do that, we notice we're doing it. And then we start to say, okay, I can let it be. I can let it go. And we start to rest more deeply. We start to feel the resonance of our experience beyond the particular detail or the specific content or shape or form of what it is that we're feeling or seeing or smelling or thinking or whatever the experience might be. And in that condition we we become open. We become sensitive. And we may start to feel the resonance of what's being pointed to here with the organ that can know it, which is not our mind. And for the sake of language, we could call it our heart, but it's not the organ in the middle of the chest. It's more in terms of the heart as what is actually the core of what's happening here. What is it that actually knows that this is going on at all? And that which knows can know 
what this is, if that makes sense. And if it doesn't, don't worry. And what's interesting about the recognition that can take place is that what's recognized is always fresh and new. And yet, remarkably and inevitably also familiar. And we may notice those moments when we felt touched, when we've seen something. And it's just the beauty of a, of a drop of dew or a pebble on the path or a leaf on a tree or just something or someone just taking an exquisite step or moving slowly in the yoga when we opened our eyes even though you're not supposed to. And we just see something that just touches us and there's something that can seem very fresh in that quality of being touched. It's very fresh and yet it's also familiar. We recognize the touch. And this is the mark of something true. Although when we're open to truth, we're touched by truth, it's always fresh. It's not from the memory, from the images, from the history of the past. And yet it's familiar. Known for the first time and yet recognized. And this is the immediacy of awareness, of aliveness, of wakefulness. And it's mysterious. And it's just so ordinary because it's going on right here, right now, and it always was and will be. It's like it's tangible when we're really still. And yet if we try and put our finger on it, the very act of trying to put our finger on it, it's gone. It's lost. The Buddha didn't say too much about this. Because if we try and frame it, whatever we frame it with partakes of the nature of frames, which is subject to birth and death. Whatever we try and take hold of it with cannot hold it. Any more than our cupped hands could hold the ocean. But our hands can nonetheless be dipped in the ocean and know what that is. So this life and this practice, in its essence, is essentially a journey of awakening, a returning to what we could understand as our origin, a coming home to the centre and source of life, of being, of existence. As T.S. Eliot put it in the Four Quartets, we will not cease from exploration And the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know that place for the first time. A condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. So there's this is pointing to and that's within a in a way a, a Christian mystic framework or mystical Christian framework that T.S. Eliot is writing as far as I understand or maybe that would be too limited I don't know but nonetheless he wasn't a Buddhist and yet speaking so beautifully clearly to something at the centre of life irrespective of traditions To arrive where we started, to know that place for the first time. A condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. That simplicity that asks us to let go of what we hold on to, what we conceive of as defining who we are. And to see that in this, what's even more remarkable than the discovery is the realization that we never left. Returning to where we started, we found we haven't departed at all.
we lose contact with or we somehow seem to have lost contact with that which is most fundamental because we're seduced we're intoxicated we're fascinated and we're entangled with the world of things that pass by that come and go and yet as we relinquish that intoxication that fascination that entanglement something starts to shine through unstoppably Rumi put it like this he said I have lived on the lip of insanity wanting to know reasons knocking on a door it opens I've been knocking from the inside In the moment of realization, one understands that one was not outside of that which one has realized, ever. But one didn't realize it. That's all. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you realize this, you will see that you are nothing. In the becoming sensitive to and feeling more deeply the touch of that, we could say, fundamental dimensionality or reality or truth of life. As we understand this, it becomes clear why spiritual teachings suggest to let go of our identification with things, we see that these do not ultimately define us. The stories of our lives and our history, the characteristics of our experience, our personality, our good qualities, all these have their meaning, their importance, their significance, of course. But when we feel when we sense, when we know directly, and it's a direct knowing, it's not something mediated through the senses. It's not something mediated through the intellect. That's why we talk about something immediate. That mediation happens in time and creates the sense of a movement or a journey. But the actuality is not that. And that which is immediate, when we know that which again we could call our deepest nature or the awakened nature of the human heart. Then the very urge to take hold of things as defining who and what I am begins to drop away. We see that that, that craving, that looking for satisfaction in things is because in some way we have turned away from that where the true satisfaction is known. Somehow, and we haven't intended to turn away, but somehow we've been drawn away. And yet at the same very process of being drawn away has within it the seeds of the call and the pull and the movement within life that draws us back. That's part of what I believe is what brings us here. And I trust is there in us all, human beings, with that deep caring and interest shown in so many ways in life. And this is the basis of freedom. To know deeply and unshakably that we are not defined by our experience, by any particular thing, by any particular condition, any feeling or thought. That this experience arising as it is needs to be attended to but it does not ultimately define what is most true. It reveals what's happening, sure. We need to learn to be skillful with these things. That's part of our life. But there's more to life than that. And to see that when we're not bound to the things which come and go, when we're not identified with them, then the heart is freed from the bondage of death. And the Buddha speaks of 
the understanding which is deathless, which is free, which is liberated from the identification with that which in its nature comes and goes, is born and dies. And yet, this body-mind, which comes and goes, born and dies, of course, that is part of this, that we are not defined by. And yet, what we're talking about here is not apart from that which is born and dies. It's not something other than that which is born and dies. Is not found in some other place. How could it be? It's not the same as, but nor different than all of this. And we can't understand that with our mind by thinking about it. So if trying to think about it hurts, just let it go. Let yourself be confused or uncertain, or perhaps just a little mystified and if it doesn't seem to land anywhere for you that's okay let it go you don't have to do anything with this it might just be some words that's alright maybe one day the words will come together with the, the truth of our experience When you realize this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. When we don't take hold of the particular things of life, of body, of mind, of experience, as defining who we are, without kind of doing anything to make it happen, we somehow immediately realize that what we are is part of it all. That what we are participates in everything. That the shared and underlying nature of life to which we are in the process of awakening, that this unifies all things. That the appearance of separateness is just that, an appearance that's reinforced by the tendency to identify with particularities. And the most strong identifications being the particularities of body and mind, which so much seem to be ours, and yet are so equally and very clearly just part of the nature of things. If they were ours, as we've observed before, surely they would do what we told them to. But they don't. To not be separate from all of this. This is the basis of compassion, which arises not out of something holy or spiritual or somehow, you know, as if it means being a good person. It's actually the natural response to knowing that we are connected so deeply, profoundly, that we could not say we are separate from anything or anyone. And compassion, you know, compassion, to feel with. To feel with is to naturally respond in accordance with the, the deepest caring that is in us, that the the awakened nature of life is one in which the, the natural, organic, intrinsic caring and love which we all know, which human beings have at the core of them, self, we could say. That, that quality is constrained in its ability to move by the way we identify with this as me and these as mine and those as something other and either therefore my opponent or enemy, or just not my concern. So far as we can divide and separate out between me and that, or this and that, self and other, the, the natural flow of love, of care, 
is constrained. And as that as that identification with a limited perception or identity of who we imagine ourselves to be, as that starts to open up, then it's like there's a, a dissolution of the boundaries that we've placed on the world and on things and on each other and most painfully upon ourselves. And in the dissolution of the boundaries, love is boundless. Its nature is boundless, but that nature can't be expressed so long as we see ourselves as different than or separate from that which is around us. And we know the sweetness of its expression within those circles where we feel it, that this is our circle. And when that circle is just oneself and another or one's family or one's community, it's sweet, it's lovely. But there's so much more possibility that it has. And this natural compassion, this natural flow of care, of life to itself, we could say, is very much what this practice is interested in. To care for the suffering of others and the suffering of oneself. We can still talk about me and you, of course. We still understand that those are usable and functional concepts for certain things. But at a deeper level, there's something that's becoming clear, perhaps. And it's like, you know, the hand rubbing the foot. If the foot is sore or hurt, the hand doesn't think, you know, I'm a really holy sort of you know, thing. I'm going to rub that foot and people are going to just notice what a great hand I am. It just rubs it. It doesn't, you know... It's just what it is, isn't it? It's, it? You kick something with your foot, it hurts, your hand rubs it. Mine does. Yeah? Not your foot, maybe. You know, it's not that in line, but it's working on it. Maybe sometimes that does happen with someone else's foot. But we see that, how there's that... And of course, you know, at some point along the line, the, the foot has to do... You know, the foot has its time. It's not like the, the foot is the one that gets all the good sort of rubbing in the the hand's hard done by because it's had to do all this work. Sometimes the hand sits in a warm pocket while the foot has to go schlepping around. You know, they have their role and function. We talk about them as hand and foot. They look kind of different, don't they? But where is the hand and the foot? I mean, if you look at it, where does the one stop and the other one begin? There's no place where the hand stops and the foot begins. And yet we're all convinced we've got one of these and one of those. In fact, two, probably. But we don't. It's, this is just a hand foot. Really. Shantideva was a great mystic poet and teacher in the 6th century. He said, When acting on behalf of others, no amazement arises in me. Just as when feeding myself, I expect nothing in return. It's like it's complete. When we feed ourselves, it's like complete, isn't it? Acting on behalf of others might not be different than that when we understand that we are not separate. And he went on to say, he said, no, just as we see that these limbs are part of this body, can we not see that all beings are simply limbs of embodied life? And if we see this, if we see this, then it's natural that we're moved to care for each other and equally to care for ourselves. It's not like we somehow say, oh, I'll just look after everybody else then. No, equally we need to be taken care of. And sometimes the attention and the care goes to other. Sometimes the attention and the care goes to what we call self. In the same way that sometimes we look after the hand, 
Maybe rub some nice cream on it or get a nice glove. Sometimes we look after the foot. And it's not like it's a competition. Because we understand if we don't look after both of these, ultimately neither of them are going to be that happy. Yeah? It's obvious when we see it in one system. And when we see the larger system, it's equally obvious. Being nothing, you are everything. That is all. That is all. It's something simple. It's not so complicated. Thinking about it doesn't improve our understanding. Necessarily. It's just this. Being alive is just this. Yes, embodied beings, we are. Yes, hands and feet and everything else besides. And yet something larger too. Something vast, amazing, remarkable. That we are of this, in this, of this, are this. And the fulfillment of our life is actually the living of that truth. To live in freedom. To know that we are not defined and bound by the conditions. That we have to learn to work with them. To live in compassion, knowing that we're not separate from. And that the love in our hearts can find its way to touch this world. Even if most of its work happens in the realms nearby us. That doesn't matter. What's important is we allow it to flow. We have the larger vision. As Mother Teresa once said, we are not asked to do great things in this life, but to do small things with great love. And in that way we honour what's true. And in that way we become more and more deeply aligned with and woven into the fabric of life more consciously, more fully, the living of a life in which we are giving of service to others. It's a living of a life that's informed by what's true. Without a sacrificing of oneself, without a denying of oneself, but a taking care of all, because all is, all that is partakes. Of this that is life, we could say, that is holy, that is sacred, we could say. And there's also just this, very ordinary, this. The suchness of life. The way it is, is this. Rio Khan says, Do you want to know what has been in my heart since before the beginning of time? Just this. Just this.
So may we all in our practice here together and in our lives come to understand more fully, more deeply the, the truth of our interconnectedness. The freedom and the compassion that is born of seeing deeply in life. for our own welfare and liberation, for the welfare and liberation of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.